As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Canada is pretty sure that what China is doing to the Uyghurs is genocide. Here's Bob Ray, our ambassador to the UN, reacting to a parliamentary report that says that what is happening to Muslim Uyghurs in the remote northwest of China constitutes genocide. We can all have our opinions in saying, yes, it is, and no, it isn't a genocide. Um, there's no question that there's um, aspects of what the Chinese are doing that fits into the definition of a genocide in the Genocide Convention. But that then requires you to go through a process of, of gathering information and of, of, of making sure that we've got the evidence that would support that kind of an allegation. Now, to be clear, it's totally genocide. Reports from international human rights groups say that as many as 2 million Uyghurs have been held in detention camps across Xinjiang province. And this is how thoughts are transformed. Long hours of rote learning Chinese and the replacing of faith and cultural identity with a different loyalty. The goal of all this is clear. It's for Muslim Uyghurs to cease being Muslim Uyghurs. No more Uyghurs. That's genocide. But here's the problem with the G word. Once you commit to it, like fully commit to it, it's hard to have a polite business conversation with the country that you're accusing. And that country happens to be our second biggest trading partner. They are also a major global superpower. And they've warned us to, quote, avoid doing any further damage to China-Canada relations. 
Acknowledging a genocide also carries a moral obligation. Historically, it would mean welcoming the victims of genocide and their families to Canada as refugees. So while we've flirted with the word, Canada has ultimately backed off and assumed a position of, well, nothing, really. Not one way or the other. We're looking for ways to just be cool and not rock the boat. We are in limbo. And that means that Ayub Muhammad lives in that limbo. After five years in Guantanamo Bay, the notorious prison camp, the United States government could not find any evidence that he was involved in terrorism. But 15 years later, Canada still won't hear that. His application to join his Canadian wife and children has been denied twice on national security grounds. And that's just the latest bit of bad luck on a journey that he began almost 20 years ago when he was a teenager who left his home in Xinjiang province, China. Producer Tiffany Lam takes you through the life of a man who keeps colliding with history. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Nico Mara McKay, Chisomo Machena, Eden Weiss, Diane Abunem, Austin Bostock, Zachary Weiss, Vladimir Ailman Dyfs, and Graham. My name is Graham, and I'm an educator in Toronto. I support Canada Land because its journalism shines light into a lot of dark corners of our government and media that desperately need illumination. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of, organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand.
is January 2009. Emilike Ayerkin is on High Five, a dating website. She's 21 years old and in her home in Toronto. And as she's scrolling, she comes across a familiar image. It's of an Atouche fig. She'd recognize it because it's yellow. Our first discussion started over a photo of figs. Ayub and I are both from Atush. Malike is actually speaking Uyghur here, so we got a translator to sit in with us. Uyghur is the Turkic language spoken in Atush, a city in Xinjiang, which is a province in China. Malike messages this picture of figs, who's a guy in his late 20s, Ayub Muhammad. She asks, are those our two figs? So I told her, yes, it's Atush figs. We talked a lot. We talked about the various places in Atush. Uh, we talked almost every day. Then they're swept up in this digital romance. And about a month or so into talking to Malike, Ayub tells her about his past and how he ended up in Albania, where he is as he's speaking with her on this dating website. After a month or two of starting to talk with her, I told her what had happened, um, what I had suffered um, in detention, my entire background. And she was so soft-hearted, so kind. Um, she later told me that my story made her cry. It turns out Ayub Muhammad was one of 22 Uyghurs captured in the first months of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, just after 9-11. Ayub told Malike about how he was captured on the border of Pakistan, detained by U.S. forces in Kandahar, then sent to the notorious U.S. detention camp, Guantanamo Bay. Ayub spent five years there before being released not to his home, but to a place he had never been, Albania. Malike remembers Ayub going out on a limb. And he asked me, can you accept me? Or will you be like others? And will you flee? Will you keep yourself away from me? I was amazed that someone who had suffered all of that injustice I hadn't given up. And I told him that I believed him 100% that he was innocent. And just because uh, they were unjustly detained, I wouldn't give up on him. Six months later, they meet in person. Ayub's holding this bouquet of flowers at the Tirana airport in Albania, waiting for Malike and her dad. Her dad has given them his blessing to get married. Ayub's nervous, but tells me he's so excited when he sees her. <laughs> when I met, saw her, I was at a loss. I was so excited, really didn't know what to do. He met me at the airport. I was so nervous at first, so worried. But as soon as I saw him, I felt like we'd known each other for years. So it was a little bit normal. Six months after that, Malike and Ayub are married, and Malike moves to Albania. But she ends up coming back to Canada after she has their first child because of a thyroid condition that flares up. Even though Malike and their children, they had another one five years later, are now living in Montreal, Ayub remains separated from his family. Now, 
Malike has in fact tried to get Ayub to Canada through the Family Reunification Program for Immigrants. But Canada has rejected their application, twice. Once in 2016, and most recently this past August. I think we presented a very strong case for why it is Ayub should not be found inadmissible to Canada. It remains to be seen what the reasons are for, for the second decision. That's Ayub's lawyer, Prasna Balasandram. Before I tell you more about Ayub's case to come to Canada, you first need to know a bit more about Xinjiang. Some people call it East Turkestan because they want it to be independent from China. My name's Sean Roberts. I'm the Director of International Development Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Professor Roberts just published a book called The War on the Uyghurs. He's been studying Uyghurs and their culture for almost 30 years. You can kind of consider the Uyghurs as akin to First Nations. He says that there's always been some tension between the Chinese state and Uyghurs, since the Uyghur region was conquered before modern communist China emerged. There was a small period in the 80s, though, where Uyghur culture was allowed to flourish. But that all started to reverse after the Tiananmen Square incidents in uh, 1989, and then uh, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, because the Chinese government looked at the Soviet Union falling, and it, I think, wrongly interpreted that that was uh, due to ethnic differences. And I think there's been a downhill motion in terms of Chinese policy towards the uh, Uyghurs ever since the early 90s. Professor Roberts remembers going to China for his research. I think it was 1998. And everywhere I went, I was detained by police merely because I was speaking um, in Uyghur. Uh, And they told me, the police told me, don't uh, speak with Uyghurs. You can go to tourist sites, but um, you should not be speaking to Uyghurs. This is what Ayub grew up with. What the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, doing in my homeland, it's policies, it's very brutal, it's cruel, it's inhumane. Four people can't get together to sit down and have tea and discuss something. There are cameras everywhere. So when he wanted more, he had to leave. So I completed high school in my homeland, and then I started working in the family business. Uh, I worked at the family store, uh, but my family wanted to get education for their children. I have seven siblings. My sister was educated, and my parents wanted me to receive an education as well. So uh, with their assistance, I left the country to study abroad. But for a Uyghur man, it wasn't that easy. It was very difficult to get a passport even at that time. But we were able to get a passport. But during this process, we didn't tell anyone, didn't tell our uh, neighbors, our relatives to protect them and to protect me. Ayub says his plan was to study in the United States. So he went to Pakistan to apply for the necessary study permit. He says that while he's waiting, he went to Afghanistan as a tourist. But the timing could not have been worse. It was September 2001. Ayub says he was still in Afghanistan by early October, when the US and the UK started Operation Enduring Freedom by bombing Afghanistan, 
following up with ground troops, which included Canadian special forces. Suddenly, Ayub was in a war zone. He tried to get back to Pakistan, but says he was beaten up and robbed trying to board a bus. A local took him in and then put him in a car headed to a village of Uyghurs in the mountains, where he ended up staying for a few months. And then again, Ayub is in the wrong place at the wrong time, because this village is in the vicinity of a place you might remember, Tora Bora. At Tora Bora today, U.S. fighter planes and B-52s dropped their payloads as part of the continuing quest to destroy Al-Qaeda. It was the first major battleground of the war on terror. This is where Osama bin Laden was hiding. But Ayub says he didn't know anything about Tora Bora, had never heard of it before. And as the bombs exploded around them, Ayub and other Uyghurs took refuge in nearby caves. As the group starts running out of food, some people passing by offer to take them over the mountains to Pakistan, and Ayub decides to go with them. This was yet another mistake. We learned much later that um, they weren't good. Um, we learned later that the United States was distributing flyers saying that they would pay 5000 to 30000 dollars for uh, the capture of certain individuals and the Pakistani people were just basically handing over anybody. We learned later that the men who had led us across the border and um, to the mosque that they, they were going to sell us. Reports have since confirmed that Ayub and the other Uyghur men he was with were sold to the United States for $5,000 per person. And in 2005, NBC reported that hundreds of people were turned over to the U.S. military in return for money. So after the Pakistanis transferred us to the Americans, we didn't go straight to Guantanamo Bay. Uh, we were held in Kandahar. The soldiers there treated us very badly. They were abusive. Ayub remembers soldiers coming in the middle of the night to beat them. When they cursed at them because of this abuse, the soldiers would return to punish them later. They also used psychological torture, targeting the men's Muslim faith. So the soldiers there were very cruel. I mean, we are Muslims, but the Americans, they also have a religion. But they were so disrespectful. They would rip apart the Quran in front of our eyes. And they would make us watch, saying, hey, look, 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 as they um, put it in the toilet and uh, do their business on top of it. Roughly six months later, Ayub was flown to Guantanamo in shackles. When he arrived, he was placed in this tiny cell he thought was temporary. And then when we got to Guantanamo Bay, they put us in cages. At first I thought, because there was only a toilet there, that they just, we were, it was the bathroom, that we were supposed to go to the toilet and then they would transfer us. But then... Um, a little bit later, they put some food through the slot. I didn't know because like even in like the movies, like in Americans, even their prisoners, you don't eat where, you know, in a bathroom. And we asked them, is, is this where we're staying from now on? And then they said yes. So that we would be staying there. How big was it, if you had to guess? If when you're inside, you can do one full step forward and then you can do a half one. Even though 22 Uyghurs were sent to Guantanamo Bay, 
Ayub wasn't placed with any of them. And he didn't want to go into detail about his treatment there with me. But Ayub did go into detail about his treatment at Guantanamo for the Witness to Guantanamo Project. A warning, the next bit is going to be difficult to hear for many listeners. In that account, Ayub describes being kept naked in isolation for days at a time. He was tear-gassed until he vomited for refusing to come out of his cell. He was beaten, forcibly shaved, his genitals touched by female guards, sedated without consent. He describes rebelling against his captors and resisting, even when he knew that punishment was violent. Ayub also describes solidarity. Once, Ayub says, him and some others from his cell block went on a hunger strike, demanding to be able to send and receive letters to their family, to have a telephone to use. He says the promises were made, and as soon as they ate again, promises were forgotten. He remembers once being given food that he was allergic to, and when Ayub told the guard, the guard just threw the food on the ground. The rest of the cell block refused their meals and went hungry with him. But people were desperate. To get the attention of a commander, Ayub says that one time, more than half his cell block agreed to hang themselves at the same time. Even if he'd wanted to, Ayub couldn't join this protest. He was being punished at the time and had no sheets or clothes or towels to even make a noose. All the indignity Ayub suffered was quite literally for nothing. In 2005, a U.S. military tribunal determined Ayub was not an enemy combatant. He had been held at Guantanamo without just cause. Here's his lawyer Prasna again. The tribunal determined that Ayub was not an enemy combatant. So, i.e., whatever basis there was to detain him in Guantanamo was without merit. But although he could be released, Ayub had nowhere to go. He couldn't go back to China out of fear for his personal safety. The U.S. wouldn't take him. Neither would Canada. The New York Times reported that American diplomats tried to lobby over 100 different countries to take five Uyghurs from Guantanamo deemed non-enemy combatants, including Ayub. But the diplomats said fear of angering China and losing their development money often outweighed the promises of help from the American government. And so... Ayub waited another year to be freed from Guantanamo. He was finally released on May 5th, 2006, after the pro-American government of Albania agreed to take Ayub and the four other Uyghur detainees. I, I didn't even know what Albania was or what Albania was before I came here. So that's Ayub's story as he tells it. But Canadian immigration doesn't believe him. They say the Uyghur village near Tora Bora, where Ayub found himself in 2001, before he was captured and sold to the Americans, was actually a terrorist training camp for the ETIM. They determined that there were reasonable grounds to believe that Ayub was a member of ETIM, that's the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. Ayub says he was never part of ETIM, that he didn't even know what it was until it was brought up as he was interrogated. And according to Professor Sean Roberts, who wrote that book, The War on Uyghurs, that's not terribly surprising. The Chinese government has often conflated, you know, any kind of diaspora movement that's talking about self-determination and human rights. They've suggested that they're all part of 
kind of an uh, amorphous Eastern Turkestan terrorist force. But the people that the United States recognized as a terrorist group in 2002, and incidentally, that was, I think, you know, it's, it's fair to speculate that that was very much in part to get China's acquiescence on the U.S. invasion of Iraq the next year. But uh, that group was a small group in Afghanistan, and I've done a lot of research about it. It seems very much that this uh, was almost not really a group at, at all. It was more of an idea. The U.S. recently took ETIM off of their terrorism exclusion list back in November. Canada, for its part, does not list ETIM as a terror organization. It's a different culture, uh, different people here. Everything's different, and life is difficult. I still haven't been able to get used to it. It's been over a decade since Ayub's release from Guantanamo to Albania. But life as a free man there hasn't been easy. While he's managed to get a business degree, he hasn't gotten Albanian citizenship. And he can't travel outside the country. I have to work under the table. I've been working at this bakery. And just recently, the guy who delivers bread, he asked me what the Americans' purpose was in sending me to Albania, suggesting that I was some kind of American spy spying on the Albanians. Yeah, it hurts me. It's very offensive. Um, that they would think like that, still think like that of me. And it hasn't been any easier for his wife Malike since moving to Montreal with their children. When we spoke with Malike, she was actually at the hospital for her thyroid condition. It's really difficult. I need to work. So sometimes when I'm working and the kids get sick, I have to leave work to attend to them. And there's a lot of school events and conferences that I have to attend. It's, and it's really difficult to find someone to take care of the kids. What would really help Malike is to have Ayub with her in Canada. She's been trying to bring him here for years. The first time she applied for family reunification back in 2014, their lawyer said there would be no issue around inadmissibility because no charges were ever laid against Ayub. He was exonerated by the U.S., and granted asylum in Albania. But in 2016, Ayub got his first notice that he'd been deemed inadmissible to Canada because of his time in Afghanistan. So I just want to be clear that the Canadian government has not alleged that Ayub Mohammed is a terrorist himself, merely that he is a member of an organization that they believe has committed terrorist acts. And so there isn't a any particular act that they're ascribing to Ayub himself. And the reasons were essentially that Ayub happened to be in um, Afghanistan at the time that the U.S. forces uh, invaded in the wake of 9-11. There really wasn't a clear set of reasons that linked Ayub to being a member of ETIM. Malike and Ayub hired Prasna after that first decision, and he fought it, saying that the process had been unfair. 
I felt like they were seeing mud at me, making me pay for something I didn't do. They were saying I said things I didn't say, accusing me of things I didn't do, saying I was a part of the East Turkestan Islamic Party, which I hadn't heard before they accused me of that. So I, I never thought that the Uyghurs could use force against China. And I still don't think that. I've never, I don't think that's a good idea. And I never thought that. During his interviews for the first immigration application, Ayub wasn't even given a translator. After I talked a little bit, they would say, yeah, we understand you, we understand you. So I thought they understood what I intended to, to say. Um, and I thought speaking in English would help my case. And then when I couldn't find a certain word to express what I meant to say, she would provide suggestions. Or other times when she couldn't provide suggestions, she would just pass along. And then I felt like later that they added a lot of things that I didn't say. The focus of our arguments was really to say, look, you don't have to even look at the actual decision to find him inadmissible. What the law says is that he is to be given a fair process in terms of that determination itself. He needs to be given notice about what the particulars are that are grounding the inadmissibility. He should be given some disclosure of the relevant documents that are being used as part of that determination that is not publicly available. And finally, he should be given some opportunity to provide some written submissions um, to address those allegations. And so it was on that basis alone that the federal court quashed that decision. They didn't need to look into the evidence that was relied upon to find him inadmissible. It was based on procedural fairness alone. So Ayub and Malike got the chance to apply again to be reunited in Canada, which they did. And this past August, they got their second answer, and it was still no. We don't, at this time, know what led the Canadian government to determine that he has been inadmissible for a second time. We communicated with the relevant office to request a copy of the reasons. Uh, We were told that reasons would not be provided. This lack of transparency has extended to the media. I spent a month trying to get a straight answer from Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada about Ayub's case and the reason they've decided he's inadmissible. IRCC wouldn't give me specifics about the first or the second decision. Finally, they gave me a brief response that Ayub had been refused on security grounds. Malika and Ayub have been fighting to live as a family for six years now. Sherry Aiken used to be an immigration and refugee lawyer. I actually represented a number of people who were facing security inadmissibility designation. So that's my experience with national security issues and non-citizens. She's now an associate professor at the Faculty of Law at Queen's University. And she says these delays are typical for people who've been flagged for national security concerns. Unfortunately, it's very typical. I mean, we do need to understand that um, security delays are not typical for immigration cases generally. I mean, relatively few people end up bogged down like this in the grand scheme of hundreds of thousands of people 
being admitted to Canada in any given year. Um, But for those who end up getting caught in a national security procedure, it can drag on for decades. Professor Aiken says there are likely two reasons for the delay. You know, at the front end, certainly there's a quote-unquote intelligence work that goes on, uh, typically by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, as they sort of do their digging to find out uh, about the backgrounds of every applicant. um, And presumably that takes some time. But after that, uh, my best guess for the the delays, frankly, um, is a lack of political will. I expect that it's, you know, simply decision makers not wanting to touch what are perceived to be hot potatoes. In this particular context, do you think China relations would be considered such a hot potato? Absolutely. You know, you look at it and the United States itself has retracted um, its concerns about these individuals, have acknowledged uh, very clearly the mistakes that were made. So it, it is a bit shocking. Um, but certainly then you look at it through the lens of uh, Canada-China relations. We know the Uyghurs are a persecuted minority within China. Um, I can't imagine actually why Canada and Canadian officials wouldn't be prepared to move on these cases. Um, But we can't know what's going on behind the scenes in that regard. Professor Aiken did say she didn't want to make light of the threat of terrorism. I think it's very important for people to understand that we don't want to trivialize national security interests, right? There's a reason that there is this vetting that goes on. But the blunt instrument of rejecting people's family sponsorship applications on the basis of you know, suspicions that are most likely unfounded is a deep problem, right? And and we don't treat citizens this way. The problem is under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, the scales are tipped far too extremely in favor of the security interests and against the interests of the individual. And in a way that I think is out of whack and not necessary to achieve those very legitimate security interests. And for all the lip service Canada gives family reunification, Professor Aiken says there is no legal obligation. If you actually look at the objectives of Canada's Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, family reunification is mentioned, but it's not mentioned as a right. It's it's basically, um, you know, an objective of the act to facilitate family reunification. But it doesn't say that families in Canada have a right to be reunited with their family members. Professor Aiken also says that in cases where immigration and national security intersect, and there's a situation where it's the government's word against the applicants, it never works out for the applicant. That's the really disturbing part of it, because the language in, inscribed in the act pays deference to the government's doubts, right? So when in doubt, say no. That's basically baked into the fabric of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, In other words, the security and admissibility provisions are worded so broadly that there just needs to be the barest of suspicions that you might be in any way acquainted with or sympathetic to uh, the goals of an organization that the government views as terrorist. And that's the end of the day for you. Malika and Ayub are now in the process of appealing the second rejection in federal court, meaning that Not for the first time in his life. Ayub is stuck somewhere he doesn't want to be, waiting. 
While she waited in a hospital room to get results of her latest tests, I asked Malike, what went through her head when Ayub first told her that he was one of the Uyghurs who'd been in prison in Guantanamo Bay? You know, back in the day when they just matched on that dating website and started flirting with small talk about figs. So I did worry. I thought, how would this affect me, my future? And if I had children, the future of my children, this stamp of Guantanamo Bay, the stigma that comes with it. I worried about it a lot. But then I thought to myself, this is a man who suffered so much injustice. And it's because people misunderstood him. They weren't willing to understand. And I can't do that to him. I can't hurt him. I have to try to understand. These days, Malika and the kids are some of the only family that Ayub can still reach. So about six, seven years ago, I could communicate or, you know, uh, get news about my family. And then recently, I heard that my siblings, my father, that they've all been detained. And Ayub tells me he still believes he can make it to Canada. He actually had a literal dream about Canada once. I had a dream when I was in detention, before in my marriage uh, to Malika. I remember like like I just saw it on TV. There were these trees, the, the trees that Canada is known for, uh, the maple tree. And then I remember pine trees. I guess there's a lot of those in Canada too. I felt like myself in a green forest and I saw the Canadian flag. And I thought to myself, oh, oh wow, I'm in Canada. How did I get here? I can, I can remember it like I just saw it now. And then it became a sort of a hope for me that one day I would end up there, especially after I married Marika. So it's a dream that I never gave up on. God willing, that, that dream will come true. The U.S., Canada, they know that I'm innocent. It's, it's just a political issue right now. I've become a sacrifice to that political issue. I, I believe that things will work out, and I believe in that dream. That is your Canada Land. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land, and our website is canadaland.com. Special thanks to the interpreter you heard in this episode, Aji Noor, and also to Sabiha Torsun, who helped with translation. Tiffany Lamb reported this week's episode. Kasia Mihailovich produced it with help from Gabe Knox and Roslyn Kufour. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our theme music is by SoCal. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like the work that we do here, please support it. Go to canadaland.com join or just click on the link in the show notes.